0: What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from ndhackers.com and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. I'm here with Chris Bucky, the founder of Lasky.com and also the founder of Interviewed. Chris, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: You popped on my radar basically a month ago, maybe a few weeks ago. You did an AMA on Andy Hackers, and the title of it was Built My Last Company to $2.5 Million in Annual Recurring Revenue, Became Profitable in Two and a Half Years, and Sold It for Mid Eight Figures, which you clarified to be around $50 Million. And then you said, And going even bigger this time, ask me anything. First of all, Uh, How do you sell a company that's making $2.5 million for $50 million?
1: I think that there's a lot that goes into that. I mean, I I think clearly it has to be some sort of uh, strategic initiative by the acquirer. Uh, I I mean, there's many ways to get to those multiples. I, I think sometimes if revenue is growing crazy fast, you can get there. If it's a really hard market, you can get there. Um, I don't think either was necessarily true for us. I mean, revenue obviously grew fairly quickly to get to two and a half, three million in in about two and a half years from zero, but you know, it wasn't one of these stories you hear companies today, occasionally who are just growing at like they're doubling revenue month over month or whatever. That was never the case for us. It, it always kind of felt like when we were in it, it felt like a slow and steady grind growing, you know, 10, 20% month over month in a lot of cases. And it just compounds quickly, you know, if you don't have a churn issue, stuff like that, but in terms of the acquisition and the outcome. It's it's a long story and happy to go into it, but indeed, it was actually one of our early investors. They then became a customer and then they became our acquirer. And so it was really almost from day one, I think over two years of getting to know the team, working with them. Uh, and it just so happened that that business, which was uh, running non-technical assessments. So as all of these technical assessment companies, HackerRank and whatnot were coming up, we saw an opportunity in 2015 when we started interviewed to say, All sorts of people applying for entry level customer support, sales, you know, financial analyst positions, operations positions. And right now those interviews mostly suck because the interviewer doesn't know what he or she is doing. Um, They're untrained. They don't know what questions to ask. And so if we can put some structure on this interview and make it a really good experience for both the candidate and the team, the recruiter, the hiring manager to interviewing, then we can sell this product into big companies. And that was an area, I think, certainly that Indeed and a lot of other job boards were all trying to uh, figure out around 2017, 2018.
0: Cool. So we'll definitely go into that story. I want to ask another question that came up during the AMA. This is my question. You sell your company for $50 million. That's a huge amount of money. And, you know, obviously you didn't get, like, 100% of that. You had, you know, a moderate amount of investment. You may have had, you know, equity that had gone to other founders or employees. But, like, it's still probably a life-changing amount of money. Why are you going even bigger this time? What's motivating you to, like, you know, throw your hat in the ring and start another company and go through the pain and the challenge and all the time and heartache that goes into building another big company.
1: I don't know what else I would be doing is the first thing. It is challenging. It is definitely painful. I respect founders who have done companies many times, whether they, you know, turn out to be successful or not, because the first year, the first couple of years, I I think in every case it's just, it's always a grind starting from zero. And so I, I enjoy it for the most part I, I think that you know i've worked at larger companies indeed it was about twelve thousand people um i worked at zillow around the time that they ipo and i've worked at a handful of really really small companies and i enjoy aspects of both i think the chaos I, I i first and foremost like i thrive in i like working with friends so working with like a small group of people who now i've actually worked with this small group of people for about nine years my co-founder and i have worked together for three companies and so I really like working with Daniel. Uh, he's a great co-founder. He's a great friend. We get along, we have very different interests and personalities, and we split up work. I think well between the two of us, where a lot of things that would probably be big co-founder fights, just sort of go unsaid between us. So that part makes it easy. It's almost like at this point, I don't have to worry about the co-founder fit. We're just simply worried about like the product fit, market fit, stuff like that. I loved making money for our investors. Many of them are angels who I, I think in actually like three cases that interviewed We were three different angels, very first angel investment ever. That turned out super great for them and for their families and for our team's families. And so, you know, even with a a small amount of money going to early team members, it can definitely be life-changing for them as well, whether that's, you know, buying their, you know, dream uh, condo or house or putting their kids in better schools, buying the right car, moving, you know, many people ended up moving uh, after the acquisition.
0: I like that you mentioned that you've got a co-founder who you've worked with on three different companies and like that whole part of your business is de-risked. And you actually have like this squad of like, I think you said nine people and you guys work together and you work really well together. And I think this is something that people underestimate the importance of, which is that your company, your job, whatever you start in life that's a project that's gonna suck up eight, nine, ten hours a day is a huge chunk of your life. And a huge part of that is the people you spend that time with. And like you don't want to put that on the back burner and like have that be the second or third thing you think about. Like that should be almost the first thing you think about. Who are you actually going to work with? It's kind of like um like I'm moving into a new apartment, as you can see behind me, and it's like, well, where am I going to spend most of my time? At my desk. And so I got like a really nice desk and I bought a really nice chair to sit in because I don't want to skimp on those things. My bed. So I bought like a really nice mattress that's like folded up in the other room. And then like at work, it's like the people that I talk to. And so I want to make sure that I'm working with really good people. And I, I think that's, you know, I'm not sure how you're able to find like this awesome squad that you really get along with. But uh, I think more people will benefit from thinking about that being like an essential part of how they structure their business.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I totally agree. Yeah. In terms of like how we met and how we kind of fell into this, we were, uh, we were all employees at the same company, uh, many years ago. And so almost uh, nine, 10 years ago, we were all employees at a company that had gone through YC in 2012, called 42 floors. And, uh, I was an early employee, Daniel, my co-founder was an early employee and we were never like told to work together. I think a lot of it was just like, you know, kind of cultural, like friendly gravitation toward one another. I at the time was sort of running operations. He was a product guy. Um and uh so we were never actually working all that closely deliberately on stuff. Um, or or at least in terms of like our OKRs and stuff. I think it was just um we we ended up getting along and we were able to chop up work really effectively between the two of us. And so it was nice being able to rely on somebody to handle uh just a lot of the stuff that I didn't enjoy doing and, and sort of like finding that right. zone of genius for both of us has been really, really powerful over the last decade.
0: Yeah, like I worked with my brother on Indie hackers and it's funny, like we're twins. And we just grew up basically always doing the opposite things. Like he was super good at sports. He's an athletic freak. He's like five foot nine. He could dunk a basketball. Like he jumps and it's just like he keeps floating up and up and up to the air. Like I'm never gonna be that athletic. So I'm like, all right, I'm gonna be good at school, you know? And then he just didn't try as hard at school because like I was super good at it. And so as kids we were very different in every way because like we just wanted to like define our own selves the way we could. And now we work on anti-hackers and it's kind of the same thing. Like the things that I work on, he's like, well, I'm not going to do that. Like I'm not going to be as good of a software engineer as you. So like I'm going to work on the newsletter, et cetera, et cetera. And then we just don't really butt heads. We don't have, you know, co-founder squabbles or fights because we're just not doing the same things. And we're both super proud to work on kind of our own areas of expertise. As a solo founder, it doesn't matter what you're good at, what you're not good at. You kind of have to do all of it. And a lot of people like just never really get over that hurdle. You know, I was talking to somebody in the podcast a few weeks ago. And what he did was basically he would alternate. He would do one week of software development and then one week of marketing. One week of software development, one week of marketing. And like that was the only way he could motivate himself to do marketing because he hated it. And if you have a co-founder, and ideally you've divided up your responsibilities well, like you don't have to have like these kind of tricks or strategies. Like it just kind of works and it feels super easy. And I'm sure you feel super grateful for the other person who's doing all these other things that like you don't even want to do. You know, it doesn't even feel like work to them, but it does to you. The other thing you mentioned was that you are a hardcore capitalist. As am I. We're on the Andy Hackers podcast. It's all about building businesses and making money. I want to talk to you about this a little bit because I just feel like capitalism has gotten such a bad rap in recent years, and I can kind of see—I have my own theories for why that is—but I'm curious what your thoughts are if you don't mind going into it. But I think any system has its positives and its negatives. Capitalism clearly has issues. There's clearly negative incentives that cause people to do all sorts of horrible things, and I think it's really easy to sort of latch onto those. Bad news is what spreads the fastest but also like just running this podcast and seeing like the life-changing outcomes that so many people have had that have just made everyone's life better like their life has gotten better, their customers' lives have gotten better, their employees' lives have gotten better, their partners' lives have gotten better and they've like i don't know just like improved their communities as well. It seems to me that like the positive sides of capitalism just don't really get talked about all that often, you know. It's this incentive that like promises that you can basically make money and improve your life if you are willing to work really hard to help other people. And there aren't that many systems that basically (laughs) reward you for helping complete strangers. So I'm a huge fan of capitalism. What are your thoughts? Why are you a big fan?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know why it, it feels controversial to say it. Uh, I think it does. Like even when, you know, in mentioning it on this podcast five minutes ago, it's sort of like, you know, do, do we want to go down this rabbit hole? Is it something that I want to like fight about today? I don't know of another system as effective as bringing kind of like joy and, and you know, gratification for rewarding both yourself and your employees and your customers, like you said. So it might be out there. I, I haven't, you know, found it. I haven't heard of, of sort of what that other system would be there's all these like weird permutations now of anti-capitalism. There's like, you know, the CEO guys on on Twitter who it's like, well, I reduced my salary from a hundred million dollars a year to a million dollars a year. And I'm still like worth tens of millions, but I kind of hate capitalism. And so I, I don't know, like I think a lot of these things are done for attention and there's, there's always personal reward and personal gain from, you know, growing your Twitter following or your podcast or selling more books because you, you know, are this kind of anti-capitalist. And so I think in many cases that, the people at the forefront of these movements, the leaders of these movements are actually being, you know, rewarded pretty generously personally from, you know, being anti-capitalist. I, again, I, I don't know the motivations. I, I try not to think too much of it. I also think just in general, you know, disagreeing with people on the internet is a one-way ticket to pain. And so I try to avoid <laughs> that at all costs and just, you know, mostly keep my my views to myself. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I, I think we generally... Through the hiring process of saying, like, we try in all of our companies to give, I think, outsized equity. We try to be as fair as we can with salaries. We try to do things like bonuses and commissions and treat our employees and our friends really fairly. Um, and I think that that generally attracts people who are mostly aligned to those views. And I don't really care if, you know, we have somebody who's anti capitalist who works for us, I think, as long as they're working hard. And if they want to go take 100% of their money and, you know, give it away or uh, give it to the government or something, that's totally fine with me. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't lose sleep about it. But I, I think certainly in my own personal experience, I don't even think it needs to be that much money, but just coming from a background where watching my parents and my parents' friends never make $100,000 and getting my first job shortly out of college where I was able to do that. And just that amount of money, uh, I think anything that any company can do or any person can do to try to get to even that
0: level is is massive. So I also came from a family family. That was not super financially successful. Like, there were no like, rich people that my parents knew, or that, you know, no rich family members or people in my neighborhood. And it was kind of like weird to be an entrepreneur growing up mm-hmm. where I did. Like, not very many people did that. How did you, you know, it seems like you came from a similar background. How did you get into this? How did you get on this, this path?
1: Yeah, my my mom was a public school teacher. My dad was a, a civil engineer in like project management at a very very large construction company. But I think in both cases, you know, neither were ever an executive, neither ever were kind of a founder. Other people in my family had small businesses that they had started and and I had seen them be you know, mildly successful or, or very unsuccessful in those business ventures. I, I learned, I think at an early age that to kind of be risk adverse, to sort of like go and get the college degree. My parents between them, I think have like three advanced degrees. Uh, my grandparents both had PhDs. And so it was like this family of sort of academics who came from that world of like, if you study hard and you get good grades, you can sort of get to the next level of academia. And that degree will, you know, buy you this like very, Um, successful, extremely stable, extremely risk adverse lifestyle that you can then buy a house and do all the kind of things at the bare minimum that you want to do. I I don't know. I I was never particularly interested in that. I don't know where it came from. I think that there's plenty of people like me that come from that situation. And I don't know if it's like a minor rebellion against your parents or your family where it's like, (laughs) I don't want to be in the same job for 40 years. I love the idea of like, working on something in, in a, you know, in a sprint and like putting my all into it and just like sprinting right. for a few years and just seeing where that goes. And then after three or four years, in a lot of cases, I just get super bored. Uh, and I couldn't imagine just like waking up to work and, and sort of not enjoying what I'm doing just to get the paycheck, just because I had gotten, you know, this degree in that, in that field or whatever it is.
0: Yeah. I think it's a kind of a testament to the fact that the world is getting better, that it's an option to even live this way. You know, like Mm -hmm. there are people who are digital nomads who just like hop around and they don't have to commit to one particular place. It's just like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, sample a little bit of the best in every place in the world for as long as I can. And now, you know, sort of the millennial generation. I don't know. Are you a millennial? millennial? How old are you?
1: Yeah, I'm 32.
0: Okay, cool. I'm 34. So it's like our generation is like, I don't know, we're sort of infamous for being entitled and wanting to have our cake and eat it too. And we we can't just like have a job that pays the bills, but we also need a job that's going to like make us fulfilled and happy, et cetera. And that's kind of looked down on, but like, Why should it be looked down on? Like, shouldn't, like, we all want the world to take us to a place where we can be happy and fulfilled in what we're doing. And so I think that obviously being a startup founder and having the opportunity to create not only the job that you want, but then to also sort of exit from that after a number of years and then try something else. It's almost like you get to live a bunch of different lifetimes and one lifetime. And like, that's a super fulfilling, cool, cool thing to do.
1: Right. Yeah, there's this kind of meme. I don't know if it's a meme or if it's something that, again, is is talked down upon all the time on on Twitter and other places. Which is, you know, this statistic. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but of, um, I guess, you know, Gen Z when they're interviewed. Uh, I think our generation, you know, when we were six, ten years old, we wanted to be astronauts or teachers or firefighters or uh, you know scientists or whatever. And now, you know, six and ten year olds they want to be. YouTubers or, you know, TikTokers or whatever. And it's like, this is terrible, you know, America's over. And it's like, I don't know, man, like I've met, uh, you know, a 25 year old who lives in Los Angeles, who is basically behind the scenes working with, you know, Mr. Beast and a bunch of these famous YouTubers. And his life seems awesome. Like he seems super fulfilled creatively. He makes incredible money for his age. It's like, why do we not want more of that? I think if that's where the attention is going, if that's where eyeballs are going, if that's how people are choosing to spend their time and you can actually make decent money, then why should we hate that?
0: So what was on your mind when you started your sort of first big successful company interviewed? Were you thinking like, I wanna live a great lifestyle. I want to be financially successful. Like what was, what was sort of motivating you?
1: With any company, there's the, the the revisionist history of like, oh, you know, we had this like great mission and we, we banded together and there was like this company that we hated and we wanted to go like fix that or <laughs> we wanted to go save the world or whatever. I mean, in this case, and I think that there are maybe founders who who go out on that journey and and fight that fight. The reality of it for us was that it was it was purely accidental, and it was it was a large chunk of luck. Um, so the story I've interviewed was basically we had built a lot of these internal assessments for our own use case at Forty Two Floors, the the startup where my co-founders and I all met, and we were basically doing I think what a lot of companies did back then in 2015 and still do today, which is If you have a non-technical hire for, let's say a sales position, you want to know if that person is good at sales, you have them write some cold emails. That's commonly done in like Google Docs. You sort of review the results as a hiring committee and make a decision. Um, Obviously with other factors baked into that throughout the interview, we entered a hackathon while we were all still full-time employees in March of 2015. We ended up winning that hackathon. We got, I think, $150,000 one hundred and fifty dollars or $200,000 from the judges of that hackathon, which included like Cyan Bannister, who was at Founders Fund, Jason Calacanis, a bunch of people. And so they were like, great, like your company won the hackathon. You know, where can we wire the money? We were called pre-hire at the time. They thought pre-hire was going to be big. They wanted to invest even more money, sort of up to $300,000 into our company. And it was like, Hey, we're all like employees at this other company. We have a hard decision to make literally in 24 hours, which is, do we quit our jobs and go work on this thing that we were doing, like as a very sort of jokey side project full-time or do we reject the money and just continue working at 42 floors, luckily the CEO of that business at 42 floors was super supportive of us. And even though we were three senior people on the team, he was like, I want to invest too, I want to become an advisor. I'm going to help you guys get into YC. Uh, I think that there's this whole cycle. Like he had gone through YC as a YC founder. I I think you're a YC founder. And so he helped us apply. He helped us, you know, get connected with, with Michael Seibel. So it was like this like split second jump that was literally made, like entered the hackathon on a Thursday, did the hackathon Friday, Saturday, one Saturday night had to make a hard decision Sunday to leave our jobs. By Monday, we had like incorporated, set up a bank account and we're sort of off to the races.
0: What did you think about the YC experience?
1: I thought it was incredible. One of my two co-founders, Darren had gone through in 2011. And so he had, I think what was toward the tail end of like the original YC experience where Paul Graham was still super involved. And um, it was still this like very small cohort of companies. I think there were 35 or 40 companies in his batch. We had one of the first experiments I think is they were blitz scaling, And so Paul Graham it was sort of, he was transitioning out. Jessica Livingston was still one of our partners, which was incredible. Obviously, things have changed a lot in the last two years, moving to fully remote. But, yeah, going down to Mountain View and having those conversations with Justin Kahn and you know Kevin Hale and Aaron Harris and Jessica Livingston and Jeff Ralston. I think all of those people are incredible. You know, several of them have sort of moved on from YC. Some are still super involved. but I thought it was incredible. like i I thought at the time in YC I was like, This, I don't know, my, my take on YC was at the time, it's like, this is as hard as it gets. Like there is just no crazier time in my life. And then it just kept getting harder from there. And so it was like, okay, now (laughs) fundraising is super hard. And actually now getting like the first 10 users is even harder than fundraising and getting to the first million dollars in ARR is even harder than that. So it just never stopped being a challenge. But I think that that was definitely a, a special time. How was, uh, how was your experience?
0: I loved YC as well. I thought, there's just something in the atmosphere of having so many people around you who are all pushing in the same direction. It's just super motivating. And I think one of the biggest things that a lot of founders, especially today who like don't raise money and don't go through accelerators are missing out on is like that camaraderie. You know, it's so easy to go from like a company where you're surrounded by coworkers to quit and now you're like by yourself working in your basement and you just lose motivation. And you find that it's like it's hard to get up and work, you know, it's hard to send that email, it's hard to do this stuff. But when you have people around you, it's much easier because we're social we're social animals, like we're just motivated by wanting to contribute, by wanting to not look bad, by wanting to not be left behind. And so I liked that aspect of YC. What I didn't like was like the sort of obsession with fundraising. I was also part of like the tail end of like the original YC. I was in winter 2011. So I think one batch before your co founder. And Paul Graham was there and the other original YC partners were there. And I think we had like 35, 40 companies in our batch. And honestly, like I would have been super happy just making a company that made. A living for me you know basically being an indie hacker and i remember there are people in our batch who like sold out like they sold their companies for a few million dollars and people were like hating on them and saying they're sellouts and they, they quit too early and i'm like this person just made millions of dollars in a few months like how are you going to hate on this person as a sellout like that's incredible and i didn't like that YC sort of pushed us to like only consider that as an option but then again like that was like 2011 you know back then Nobody even like attempted to, ch- to charge money for most of their businesses. Stripe didn't exist. It wasn't even in beta yet. like it just wasn't it was a different time. And nowadays totally. if you look at like most of the big companies coming out of YC, almost all of them sort of have their head on straight. Almost all of them have a business model. they're generating revenue, they're paying customers. and it, it makes more sense for them, I think, to raise money because they understand like how they can use that to make more money in the future.
1: Yeah, I love this like cohort of companies that came out of I think early to mid YC batches. You know, I think Olart comes to mind, Zapier up until recently came to mind. These are companies that basically only ever raised their their original, you know, I guess depending on the batch, $20 to $120,000 checks, that basically like said no to all investments since then and built these massive successful companies with, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of users. Um, millions of users, I think in Zapier's case, it's pretty cool to see that. And I think it's pretty partner dependent. I remember calling Jeff Ralston, who who was and still is, I think one of my favorite people of all time, just involved in startups. And when we had this offer and it was like, hey, we're you know two years in, should we sell for 50 million? He was like, absolutely not. Like, If you can sell for 50, you can sell for 100. If you can sell for 100, you can sell for 250. And so it was like, he was a partner that was really, really pushing, I think us, but also other companies that were thinking about taking those early exits to just like, you're already through the hardest part. Um, which is getting the first users, building the early team of your first, you know, ten or so people, and so why would you want to quit now? And so I would guess that that's very, that was very different, I think, for us from some of the other advice that we got from other partners.
0: Yeah, totally. And It's cool you mentioned Zapier. Uh, I had Wade on the podcast maybe two or three years ago, and like Zapier was kind of doing its thing. I think they raised like a million, a million and a half dollars, and then like you said, they just never raised money again and just kept growing and growing. And then recently this year, they announced that they had raised like 130 million dollars at a five billion dollar valuation. And it's like, they, for all intents and purposes, like bootstrapped their way there and just grew like crazy, probably resisted investor call after investor call for years. And now the founders own like just a massive percentage of the company. And like, that's, it's such a cool story. It's amazing to me that they were able to do that.
1: Yeah. Outside of YC, Indeed, who acquired my last company, they raised a total of 5 million. They never touched most of that money. I think the story was they used about a million of it. They sold for a billion dollars uh, a couple of years later. And today, I think if Indeed were to be valued as like a publicly traded independent company, it would be probably worth like 40 to 50 billion. They're doing, you know, $5 billion in revenue off of an initial, you know, $5 million raise. So these things happen. Uh, I think Viva is another one out here next to me in, in Pleasanton that raised 7 million. I think they're a $40 billion market cap company. Right now, it's hard for there to be more of that. I don't know what Zapier's story was, but I think that there, there is just so much capital being thrown around that, if you're zapier, why wouldn't you want to add 130 million to your coffers if, if you can uh, at a crazy valuation? So I think it's smart for founders to wait as long as they can in many cases. Uh, and then for other founders, it definitely makes sense to you know take uh take the money and,
0: and and run with it. So these are some obviously huge numbers. And you know, a lot of these companies, obviously yours, interviewed, um, and D, like these are companies focused on people helping get jobs. Uh they're helping people hire, they're helping people find jobs. I love this sector because a lot of money changes hands. If you think about like where companies spend most of their money, it's usually their employees, especially in the tech industry. Employees are super expensive. And if you are a founder trying to come up with a business idea, I think one of the best things you can do is sort of anchor on, I only want to provide value to people who are going to pay a lot of money for what I'm doing. You know, If you're selling pencils and people are paying you like 50 cents for a pencil, your pencil isn't that important. They're not going to stop to talk to you on the sidewalk. Like You can kind of tell how important people think your thing is by how much they pay for it. And uh, almost without fail, most of the people that I know who start companies and the hiring space who do a good job tend to have outsized returns and gains compared to people in other spaces just because they can charge so much per customer. So I want to talk about uh, your first business interview a little bit. Um, You kind of gave us the whirlwind tour. Why do you think it was so successful? Why do you think you were able to ramp up to $2.5 million in annual recurring revenue in less than three years?
1: You're, you're absolutely right, it is an area where you tend to see sizable budget, uh, you know, a company's pencil budget is not going to be nearly as much as their as their people budget. And, and I think that that people budget gets split out in a lot of ways where um, if you think about sort of the tech stack in, in people operations or talent or recruiting HR, whatever you want to call it, you have your like HR information system, you have your applicant tracking system, you're probably using video interview software, So there's a, there's a lot of budget there. And I think a lot of these companies in that stack can get a lot of money for what they're selling. The other thing is similar to like a Salesforce on the CRM side, these are tools that are really hard and painful to rip out. And so I think another component of it, at least in the software side of the people business is you don't see companies that have a lot of churn problems because once you start using something to track all of your applicants, and let's say you're five years in, and now you have five years of candidate data in that system. Migrating it over to something that looks prettier or looks better is really hard. And so part of it for us was that on the assessment side, candidate assessments had been plagued by these very old school legacy companies that were doing like Scantron multiple choice tests for entry level customer support people for many, many years. And a lot of these businesses, like if you go down that rabbit hole, some of these businesses that were run and started by industrial organizational psychologists in the middle of Oklahoma 50 years ago, are making 40 to $60 million in revenue. So it's a crazy space. There's there's virtually no technology in the space, at least there wasn't six years ago. And so in a lot of cases, all we were doing was trying to say, look at what HackerRank and some of these companies are doing for the technical interviewing space. And if we can do some of those same things, there's not rocket science involved here, but if we can just take things from being a 45-minute pencil and paper test that you have to do to get an entry-level call center job, we can move that online, we can make it mobile-friendly, Again, these are not hard things, but there's clearly going to be budget for that because you're already spending a million dollars with this, you know, Scantron company for your testing. And so that was, it was still this like very, you know, niche industry. There's not collectively, like when you look at the total addressable market of that, you know, assessment industry, it's not massive. I think that we were, we were a small player in a pretty small market, but it also made it easy for us to, you know, maneuver and I think get spend from, from other companies. We weren't necessarily growing spend. I think we were purely replacing spend from other
0: kind of more legacy solutions. What did you learn about how to actually find customers? Because I think when you're selling something for presumably a pretty high price point, a lot of early stage founders just get intimidated. It's like, all right, well, how am I like, I've never done sales before, I don't even know who to email, who to call. Like, how am I going to convince somebody somebody to buy something that costs more than just five dollars a month, but might cost hundreds or thousands of dollars a month?
1: Yeah, I think the the first thing for us was that you you do have to start somewhere. I think that there is um You know, people get paralyzed by the idea of picking the perfect price. Like we see it with so many of our friends. We see it with companies that we've invested in. And my thought on this is, you know, I don't think anybody ever picks the perfect price on day one. I don't think many years into the company, most companies have the perfect price. You know, like you look at LinkedIn in the space, LinkedIn is updating their pricing like every other month. (laughs) They're A-B testing different things. They're testing how do you package a recruiter seat? You know, what do you get for that recruiter seat? It's been this constant evolution over the last 15 years with LinkedIn's pricing. And so I think for us in terms of getting customers, it was um, just get somebody who's paying something in the door and then leverage that first customer. For us, it was a customer called Taskus, uh, was our first customer ever. Um, They were based in Los Angeles and we had actually gotten that relationship through a relationship uh, that uh, we had at 42 Floors where Taskus was basically our outsourced customer support and data entry company. And we knew that they were hiring a ton. And so the the conversation to the founders in 2015 and interviewed was, Hey, I was the CEO of this company. We spent a lot of money on you guys. We took an early bet on you guys. Could you repay the favor? And I think that that happens all the time. Like, you know, one founder is selling to another founder that founders buying their stuff. It's just this like, you know, continuous cycle, but, um, it worked. And, and I think Bryce and Jasper, who are the co-founders of that company, They took a bet on us. They paid us a tiny amount of money for the value that we were delivering. But the important thing was we had an early customer within the first couple of months who was paying us for an actual prototype. We quickly convinced them to do a case study. We rolled that into another company, another company, and all these companies were paying us 500 bucks a month. And then I think after, you know, probably six or seven of those uh, customers where we had built out the case study, we also got, I think, four of the seven as investors. Um, so Jonathan Swanson was one of those who was running Thumbtack at the time. He came on as an investor. Uh, uh, Bryce and Jasper from Taskus came on as investors, um, and so we got like four of our first seven customers to to actually invest in Interviewed. Uh, I think around the time pre YC, um, which was super powerful because then we were able to leverage their networks to say, now I have a reason as a CEO to go talk about this company to my other CEO friends who are also you know struggling to hire you know non technical talent at scale. Um, and so that was sort of the the early journey. And it was really, um, I think for us too, we we really, really, really prioritized what we call the three L's. Um, so that was lettuce as in like cash money, learning and logo. And so we always wanted to get two out of the three. And so in a case with like Task Us where we weren't getting a lot of lettuce, we weren't getting a lot of money from them. We wanted to learn a ton from them and we wanted to get their logo to go leverage into getting other logos or getting other customers. Um, and so that like continued. I still use that framework today for like our own sales team at Lasky. I used it all the way through Interviewed, and it was a pretty good framework of like when your first hundred customers. I think for some businesses, in your first thousand customers, you're never going to find your perfect customer. I think you could make an argument that you should go strive to go find perfect customers in the early days. I, I think for us, it was you know take the customers, but if they're paying you a ton of money uh, and they have a really good logo, like you know Wells Fargo was using you early on don't get too concerned about not learning a lot for them or about the expansion opportunity or whatever else, like take the money and run, take the logo and run, try to get a case study. But if, if a company doesn't have a lot of money to pay you, I I think that they can still be a really valuable early customer, as long as they agree to do things like give a testimonial or a quote or a case study, where then that can be leveraged into getting, you know, a customer that will actually pay more money. And so I think we were very, um, we were very flexible with our early customers that interviewed, Um, And I think taking bets on uh, young emerging companies worked out super well for us. It's worked out super well for other companies. Um, We took an early bet on Canva when they were like 40 people. Um, We took uh, DoorDash was one of our first uh, customers. I think they had about 18 people out of YC, uh, maybe two years before us or something. Um, Taskus grew from like a thousand people at the time to I think they just IPO'd this last week. And they're now like 24 or 30,000 people. So being in the hiring space, I think the other thing is if you take a bet on an early customer, they're not only easier to close, but they also grow with you. And so we didn't have to do any incremental work on DoorDash or Lyft or Canva or Taskus or any of these companies or Thumbtack. Like these all just, you know, they were already fairly sizable startups, call it like 20 to 200 people. We got them in for a small amount of money. We priced based on volume. So the number of candidates Mm -hmm. they were screening with us. And, you know, at the point that some of those went from screening you know, 100 candidates a day in March of 2015 to, um, you know, 1,000 candidates a day two years later, that contract sort of 10 xed you know, with that relationship, which was super powerful for us.
0: I think one of the most important parts of pricing is actually kind of like, what are the sort of unit, what is the unit that you're charging for? And by picking kind of a unit where you're getting paid more, the bigger the company is because they're hiring more people, you're kind of aligning your incentives because no company is really complaining about like getting bigger and hiring more people. And you're kind of like then incentivized to sort of bet on customers who are going to grow. Like you want to get the customers who are going to grow the biggest. And so like it's kind of an everybody wins, rising tide lifts all boats. Sure, you're getting paid more, they're paying you more, but like everybody's happy. And it seems like kind of a fun sales process to be involved in. And I think also people sort of underestimate how fun sales can be. You know, it kind of seems like, ah, it's this huge chore, it's terrible. If only I could just have a a marketing driven company where I don't see anybody and they just sort of see an ad on the internet or they read a blog post and and they sign up, like that would be great. But actually, like some of the fun in running a company is like talking to your customers and getting to know them. And in your case, like a lot of them became friends and investors or partners, and maybe even future employees. And like these are people who are going to help you solve your problems. Are there people who are going to help you do, you know, one of those three Ls, like learning, and tell you like, oh, hey, you know, why don't you restructure your homepage like this? i want you to you offer this service. And it just makes the entrepreneurship journey much more rewarding, and I think more likely to be successful. And so I, I wish more founders didn't run away from sales in the early days. I wish more of them were willing to do sort of what you did and just pick up the phone, email people, contact your previous contacts or employees or customers and just say, Hey, like, you know, will you be our first customer?
1: Yep. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think everything, everything as a founder comes down to sales or 80% of things come down to sales. Like you're, you're recruiting and that's sales. You're trying to convince people to take a bet on you and on your vision and on on your company. In many cases, especially today for, way lower initial compensation that they would be making at a large tech company. Um, you're, you're selling, you know, investors in a lot of cases, or in, in, you know, if you're bootstrapping, in a lot of cases, you're trying to get loans, you're trying to structure debt, you're trying to get, you know, uh, bank relationships set up. You're trying to get like your payment processing all set up and all that is sales. And then I think, you know, I think a lot of founders are okay with that, but then it comes down to, like you said, talking to those early customers. And I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, people, innately don't like to be rejected. Like rejection sucks. (laughs) You have to go through a lot of rejection when you're fundraising or when you're hiring or when you're selling. And so if you're doing it in other areas, it can be painful to have customers tell you no a hundred times a day. And then I think a lot of it too, I remember this at interviewed a lot of it. And and even here at Lasky, like in the first, I don't know how long it is. It's different for every company in the first couple months, in the first couple of years, in some cases, I think it's embarrassment. It's like, I think Reed Hoffman at LinkedIn had this thing of like, Back in the day, if you are not embarrassed to demo your product to your first user, you have waited like way long to go find your first user or something like that. Right. And I think that there's like a huge embarrassment when it's just you working by yourself or you and your co-founder in a room or working remotely and you've spent months on this thing and you're afraid to get, you know, embarrassed by it, by having some buyer at some company tell you this thing sucks. I think the reality is that's never really happened to me. I think most most people tend to be pretty nice <laughs> on the internet if if you uh, if you if you approach them. And so, um, yeah, I mean, the, there's definitely always that fear of uh, of rejection. I think that's one of the things I loved about the the you know Indie Hackers AMA in the community, which is I think in your comment box, it's like say something nice to Chris or like say something to support this project. And I think you know you have these communities like that that do a great job of like lifting one another up and. You know, we talked earlier about motivation and I think ultimately you know, nothing else matters if you lose motivation. And so like forcing yourself in the early days of your mm. company to put your product out there and to get it in front of users and get their feedback, the feedback is never as bad as you think it's going to be. Like yeah. <laughs> most people will be very pleasant, very nice, even if they're not, not going to buy and having those, I'm not going to buy this because of X conversations that are real and you actually get somebody's candid feedback. Honestly, it's just as valuable as, as getting early customers who are maybe buying for the wrong reasons, I think, in the early days.
0: Yeah. I mean, you basically said the most important thing to do is to to, to not quit, right? To not lose motivation. And it's mm-hmm. super important to just continually, therefore, find like what's sapping your motivation, if you are, in fact, having that happen to you, and get rid of it. And I think this sort of 3Ls, that you, 3Ls framework that you had, where you were sort of going for like lettuce, learning, and logo, is super smart because... It gives you a very concrete thing to latch onto, like gives you wins, right? You know why you're taking a particular action. Like, why am I trying to send up this customer? Because I want one of these three L's. And then you know how to handle handle that interaction because you're trying to always drive the conversation to one of those three L's. So you don't feel like you're just sort of aimless. And then when you get it, like you have a little win. You're like, okay, I got a logo out of this. Maybe they didn't pay me my full price. You know, maybe I didn't learn anything and my product is just as bad as it was yesterday. But like, I got a logo I can put on my homepage and that's going to make the next time easier. And I think if you have this sort of like upward staircase, like when you have always know that like what you're doing contributed to like making the next step easier, it's just easier to maintain motivation. And that's ultimately what matters in your startup in the very early days. Like if your startup fails, it's because you quit, you know, and if you quit, it's because you ran out of money or something else, but like, it's ultimately because you weren't motivated. Because even if you run out of money, there's other ways to go get more money. You know, even if no one's buying your thing, you can like restructure your product, et cetera. And so it really just comes down to motivation. And I love this sort of framework where you always know, here's why I'm doing this, and here's the win I'm going to get that's going to keep me motivated.
1: Yeah, 100%. Over the last year and a half, I mean, we've we've been running remote teams for seven years, but I, I think with remote, uh, remembering to celebrate wins is particularly important. I think we suck at it at Lasky. I think we were bad about it at Interviewed. And um, when you do get together with a team, like at Indeed, we had 60 offices all over the world. And I would like see our, I'd go visit our product teams and our sales teams and our engineering teams and our customer support teams. And um, you would get those wins throughout the week. Like somebody closes a deal on the sales floor and the people around that person are like celebrating with them. And you have the, like, this person's been here for one year, like balloons on their desk. And like all of those like micro wins that you get by being around other people. I think you have to be super intentional if you're working remotely, Um, And even with customers, like, especially in the hiring space, like we win when they win, which is hiring somebody like, how do you help celebrate with a customer who may be based in, you know, Brazil or Mexico or Europe or like wherever, Uh, it's really hard. You have to be intentional about it. You have to find ways to like help your team win, to stay motivated as a founder and keep your co-founders motivated, um, to keep your customers motivated, to keep like betting on you and keep, you know, using you. And so I think uh, it's definitely hard. I think the the wins are important and it's like one of the most... (laughs) under discussed parts of, of the entrepreneurial journey. And it's so easy, I think in remote work to just be like, if you're coding all day or you're selling all day or you're fundraising all day to just be like, you know, heads down and everything is very tactical. Now you're, you're using checklists for everything and just checking things off. But like looking back at the end of a week and realizing how far you've come and if the week sucked, okay, what are you going to do to change it next week? If the week was great, like, remember to say something about it. I think that that's something that I try to remind myself of all the time. And I'm still terrible at it after eight years of remote work. And it's just something that I think is way harder if you are working remotely versus in person.
0: How did you celebrate selling interviewed for $50 million or somewhere thereabouts?
1: Yeah, that was that was an easy one. I, I do have a good answer for that. My, uh, my two co-founders and I, we paid out of pocket for our entire team and all spouses, kids, whatever, to uh, fly to Las Vegas. Uh, we gave everybody a few thousand dollars in, in gambling cash. We paid for everybody's flights, hotels, you know, restaurants, meals out, whatever. And then we kind of went back to it. So that was about 30 days into, into selling the company. And so we had a nice little retreat. And then on, on an ongoing basis, I would say that is actually an extension of something that we've done now. That I learned from Jason Friedman, who was the founder of 42 floors back in yep. 2012, when I was working for him, which was to do, if you're going to be a remote company, you've got to spend the money to get the team together on a semi-regular basis. And so we would do workations back in the day, we've done them you know, now for eight years across three companies. We've done Salt Lake City, we've done Austin, we've done Nashville, we've done Vegas, we've done Napa, we've done Tahoe. So like finding somewhere where you can kind of fly the entire team in build those relationships once a quarter, once every 6 months whatever it is. I think that that has been super critical for like celebrating the wins remotely as well.
0: Do you think you've like acclimated to that high? Because I mean you spend years building a company, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of challenge. And then you have this sort of like one almost instantaneous like exit event where it's like bam, you did the thing, you know, you won, and that feeling fades and the high goes away and you acclimate and you know even if you are celebrating it like eventually that's just sort of the new normal how has it felt for you having sold this company and like sort of reached this success i think it has come in levels so
1: working at my first startup out of college where i was in sales and i was you know in business development and partnerships and i was hustling at this small company for a year and a half and then that company was sold to zillow um, for about 45 million didn't see like a founder-sized exit but got a, a nice little chunk of change at sort of a young age and and that felt, you know, I think very briefly, like, okay, I'm on top of the world. I made, I can't remember what it was, a hundred or $150,000 in equity from the sale. And I get a higher salary at Zillow and I get all this Zillow stock. And like, this is, you know, this is as good as it gets. And, you know, being in the Bay area, it's like, oh, congratulations. I can afford a marginally larger apartment now or whatever it may be. <laughs> like this is, this is not life-changing money by any means. And then kind of having a couple more experiences as, as an early employee, you know, Zillow stock goes up, you kind of get to that next level. So I, I think for me, I think some people, uh, I've definitely had friends where it's like, they have a negative balance in their bank account, or they like literally have like a couple hundred dollars in their bank account, and they're making like 10 or $50 million personally, like, that is like a giant, you know, yeah. level up. I think for me, it, it came a little bit more incrementally, certainly interviewed, you know, I think was the the first like massive win where it was, you know, orders of magnitude higher than you know anything I had received before. But I don't know that it faded for me. Like, I I think that there are still things that I I try to remain, you know, super grateful of. And, and I think, you know, overall, certainly life is better with a hundred thousand dollars than with zero dollars and with, you know, $10 million than with a hundred thousand dollars. That goes back to like the capitalism conversation earlier, like, you know, things, at least for me, like my experience was things get better. I I think that there is probably, it's not as life-changing if you're going from, uh, you know, if you're making a million dollars and you already have half a million in the bank, or you're making a million dollars and you already have a hundred million dollars in the bank. Like I, I'm sure at that level, it, it fails to be this incredible thing anymore, but there's definitely obviously this temporary surge and this temporary rush. And you want to go spend the money or invest it or become an angel investor or whatever it is. But for me over the last four years since Selling Interviewed has been, I think, semi-sustained. Like I'm super grateful to live where I live. I'm super fortunate and feel blessed to have like the house that we live in. In the neighborhood that we're in, and 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 I think all of that just wouldn't have been possible if I, you know, had just, uh, you know, stayed in my first job forever, or had, you know, not worked in technology, or not took totally. the, you know, risk on myself of starting a company.
0: How did you transition from, I guess, feeling this high and like having this huge success to starting another company? Because now you're working on another company called Lasky. This is the one you did an AMA about on Andy Hackers. What was that transition like?
1: A long and painful transition, just in the sense of you know there's this period in between building interviewed for two and a half years and then selling it and then working at our acquirer at Indeed for about 3 years and then starting Lasky and so there was this period where i had to go and like put my you know manager hat on and like put my executive hat on and like it wasn't my company anymore but i still had to hire a ton of people our team went from i think about 12 people at interviewed at the time that we were acquired to several hundred people within Indeed very quickly And so that was just like a whole different beast. I think I was on one hand trying to keep my like founder entrepreneurial hat on so that I didn't get used to the comforts of working at this like massive company where there's an awesome paycheck and perfect benefits and like everything is comped, and I travel the world to all these offices and I just like hire with somebody else's money and I spend somebody else's money. Like first real time, I think in my life that I had done that. And indeed was this like wildly profitable company where it just felt like, Money did not matter. Like all the time I was looking at budgets of like $18 million and $10 million for this and $2 million for that. And I was like, holy shit, like this is crazy. <laughs> like, uh, and this is like a very small part of like what the you know, total organization is seeing. And so it was this balance of like trying not to get too sucked up in that, but also enjoying it and trying to learn from it. Like our CEO and our, our executive team at Indeed, they are brilliant. They're incredible operators. They're incredible at what they do. And so I also wanted to learn from them. I I didn't want this to be just say like, oh, I'm only teaching the people on my team how to work effectively at a big tech company. It was like, how do I learn from our CEO? How do I learn from our our chief product officer? So they gave me a lot of opportunities, which I am, you know, again, super grateful for. But yeah, I think the transition was after about a year and a half, I was feeling an itch to get back to something smaller. It, It took longer than I, than I had kind of originally thought, but I knew that I would partner back up with Daniel, my co-founder, and it was just sort of a matter of timing for us in terms of what that balance was going to be. You know, I had gotten married in that period. He had his first kid in that period. And so there there's just a lot of like life stuff that came up for both of us, I think, around when we would ultimately start Lasky. But um, it was a pretty seamless transition. Like I, I, I was fortunate to leave Indeed at a point where kind of regardless of what happens with Lasky. Financially, I wasn't taking nearly as big of a risk on doing another company like I was starting Interviewed. Um, And I think that that made it easier in some ways, but it also, it made it really scary because it's like with Interviewed, again, it happened so fast. It happened in a day. We didn't know what we were doing. And there were also no expectations. Like founders fail all the time. I think that they're like, way higher expectations, like raising from all of our existing investors, bringing our team over to be like, don't fuck this up. Because like, (laughs) we know that you nailed it the first time. And if you're going to go bigger then like, we expect like a big outcome with this one. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was like, honestly, a good six months of it was just deciding like, what's the area we're going to spend. So it was it was night and day, like the first company was formed. And I went to Wells Fargo and set up the bank account in 2015. And, you know, got our, our company checking account set up. And you know incorporated with this like random lawyer we met over the internet which turned out to be a disaster all in 24 hours <laughs> and here it was like i had like amazing resources to go like hire auric and like hire you know all the best people to like kind of help us set up in the in the right direction and but that means that i think when you have unlimited options to go choose whatever you want to do next it actually makes it way harder than I think in sometimes just stumbling into it and being like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, I've, I found this opportunity, whatever. I'm not even going to think about it. I'm just going to go sprint. It, it's definitely, uh, it was very different, I think, this time around.
0: How did you approach deciding what you wanted your idea to be? Because if you know you want to go bigger, well, that, that automatically excludes like some ideas, add some constraints, like you have to, to pick an idea that actually can get big.
1: That was definitely an interesting conversation that, we, that Daniel and I spoke about a lot, that gist of it was that we got to about $3 million of ARR in our last company in a market where there's probably only a hundred to $300 million in spend, at least in in the US, like in that entire industry. So we did a a small thing in a small pond and it worked out well. And I think ultimately, you know, at this company, what we're doing is helping people hire faster, hopefully hire uh, with a higher bar we're actually like delivering the talent versus the software. So we've kind of taken a lot of the software learnings over the last five years, vertically integrated it into a staffing and hiring business. And so with that, you see a ton of competition. There are like a nearly unlimited number of companies popping up every day that are like doing the exact same thing. However, this is like arguably the largest business in the world or one of them, which is like hiring and recruiting and staffing and people and paying people and tracking people and tracking tracking hours and like You kind of go down that like people, talent, HR stack, and it's massive. I I will say in the first five months, being five months into Lasky, it has been easier in a lot of ways from a market perspective to get early customers. And I think that's simply based on the fact that we picked a much larger market this this time around, where it's a lot easier to get initial customers. Now, how do you compete with all of these other staffing companies, headhunters, recruiting companies, long-term? sort of different discussion for a different day. And we'll we'll, we'll pop our head up in a year and figure that out. But in terms of like finding initial differentiation, I, I think in the beginning of interviewed, we actually tried to go way too differentiated. Like we tried to totally like turn the assessments industry on its head. And we spent like six or nine months, like actually building out all of these like machine learning models to assess like you know, typing speed and whether or not a candidate was using sort of the proper grammar to address a difficult customer situation. And then we would, you know, show this to companies and they'd be like, that technology is incredibly impressive. What we actually want is just like a multiple choice test that you can do on your phone instead of on, you know, pencil and paper. We were like, oh shit, like there's actually a lot of money in this. Like, okay, like I think in a lot of industries, the learning was you actually only have to be 5% better. You have to be 10% better to build a massive company. Like I don't think I, I totally respect, I totally uh, admire founders who are able to go make an incremental change in an industry and like totally revolutionize an industry. Very jealous of that, love investing in founders like that. But I think for me, it's just like being, you know, fundamentally lazy at heart and knowing that like the median recruiter experience is still so shitty. It's a pretty low bar to get 5% better, 10% better than than what those companies are doing. So Um, Yeah, I was picking a big market and being one of a number of companies in a much bigger market. And I think initially that's actually been uh, a bit easier than being one of a smaller number of companies in a small market.
0: I love that idea that you don't necessarily need to be, I mean, the the old mantra is you need to be 10 times better than the competition to start a startup. And it's like, do you know how hard it is to make something that's 10 times better than the status quo? Like, even if that's an exaggeration and someone says two times better, like, it's so hard to make something two times better than, than what exists already. But if you enter a market where like guess what? People are paying for particular solutions and they don't blink at paying for these things and they're always going to want like a small incremental improvement if they can get it. You don't need a 2x improvement over the existing stuff. You can be 5 to 10% better when people go to make that purchasing decision. like They, they might buy your option. I think what's challenging is in hiring, you kind of mentioned this earlier, people don't tend to churn. They pick a solution. They're like, this is working really well for us. We're hiring people. Like We're not even in the market for a new tool. We're not looking for a new tool, etc., and so when you come out here with Lasky, like your brand new tool, like you're staring at a market full of a bunch of people who already have this problem more or less solved. How do you get your first customers when you're in that situation where it doesn't seem like people really need something new?
1: You know, you can go compete on pricing. So that actually in hiring is is, is quite differentiated where if you have the ability to place a really high quality you know, let's say engineering contractor who's working 40 hours a week. And because you have a better database, because you have a better brand and you get more engineers to come to you versus a traditional staffing company, you're able, I mean, there's, there's plenty of staffing companies out there that traditionally are taking somewhere between 50 and hundred percent margin on the hourly rate of a, you know, outsourced remote, you know, engineer contractor. So, you know, if you look at a company like I'll, I'll pick on like Reddit because they hire a ton of contracted engineers, They have even just like a couple hundred engineers who they're paying, let's say an effective rate of $150,000 a year to for every engineer, they're probably paying somewhere between 50,000 and 150,000 to a staffing company. So I think price is one massive differentiator in this industry, where if you can actually compete on price, if you can take 15, 30% margin versus 50% margin, you get a lot of people to pay attention. It's sort of a cop-out answer, but I would say in the early days, you can definitely lean on your technical background and you can lean on your ability to build solutions very quickly for a customer. And I think early customers love that, which is, you know, if you're working with Ronstad, who places a ton of engineers at big companies, I think that from a recruiting standpoint, they're about doing 30 to $35 billion in revenue. I think there's about 50,000 people that work at Ronstadt. Um, you know, Ronstadt is not going to be going to the average YC company and saying, you know outside of just getting the talent like what are the other challenges is it you're trying to get it get it faster are you trying to pay them in a different way what about compliance like are you able to file all of their paperwork and i think that there are some of these small things that like again that's the five or the ten percent improvement but it's like we're going to swarm around you like the first first ten people at Lasky, we're going to swarm around you and we're going to like make these changes or we're going to like put this into the dashboard or we're going to like give you that discount or we're going to give you this person faster and so um, again, I think some of it can be speed. I think some of it can just be you know, relying on um, on your ability to quickly customize for your first 10 or 100 customers. And I think that there's a fear in the industry, especially as a small business around that, which is, oh, like, I don't want to create a consulting company. But what you do for your first customer, you don't have to do for the next 10. What you do for you know your first 10 customers, you don't have to do for the next 100. Like, Airbnb is arguably one of the best, you know, uh, examples of this. We're like, the founding team is running around new york while they're in nyc like physically in people's apartments taking pictures because they recognize that photography was like one of the big differentiators for them like you know to an investor it's like well that's not a scalable model you know to a founder it's like well we'll outsource that eventually but like we want to yep. make sure we nail the experience and so um i think that as much as vcs and as much as other founders urge you to not go down a consulting path which i think actually can be dangerous for a lot of companies I think we take a very consultative approach with the first companies and, and the, the ability to customize is, is definitely a huge differentiator, I think, outside of
0: pricing. What do you think is the difference between companies who get kind of sucked into that consulting path and can never get off of that treadmill and what you want to do, which is you know start there, but eventually build something sort of standardized and scalable?
1: You eventually get confident and you learn to say no. You know, I, I tweeted the other day, which we're, we're going through this actively right now. I, I think first, you know, first of all, <clears throat> going out of the gates and being a one month old company and closing a million dollar contract just doesn't happen. On the other hand, closing a customer for a thousand dollar a month thing where they have a hundred thousand dollar a year budget is way harder than closing a customer that has, you know, is going to spend a million dollars, but they have a hundred million dollar budget. So you like look at those sort of like orders of magnitude difference between those levels of spend. And I think some of it is getting the confidence back to the like lettuce logo learning of like, we learned from early customers. We adapted to that learning. We made changes for them. We worked hard for them. And I think in our case, it's very clearly kind of going up market to larger and larger customers where it's not expected that again, Wells Fargo is going to ask Aerotech or Ronstadt or one of these like massive recruiting companies to make a change. They just want the people, they want the people delivered fast and maybe pricing continues to be our differentiator, but we're not always customizing for them. And so I think we, we saw this at Interviewed a lot where it's about going up market, I think in a lot of cases. And with other cases, it's just learning to say no. I think, you know, with the consultant hat on, you're generally saying yes to everything. I think, you know, I don't know if it's right, but I think with my founder hat on, I'm saying yes to almost everything for the first three or six months. And then as we hopefully find hints of product market fit or hints of success with those early customers, it's starting to say no and no and no. And I think it's, it's scary as a founder. And again, I'm actively going through this with Lasky to say, no, we're not going to discount that pricing. No, we're not going to discount these terms. No, we're not going to build that for you. Um, But, or like, you know, the, the proverbial, like, Oh, we'll put it on the, you know, the product backlog that, you know, nobody ever looks at. Um, And so saying those things to customers can be scary, but I think ultimately good customers will respect you for them. Uh, They don't expect you to be their consultant long-term. And so Mm -hmm. I think a lot of cases people will push and you just have to push back.
0: So I'm going to wrap up here with a a question about ideas, because I think one of the places where you sort of envision like the funnel of entrepreneurship, the very top of the funnel is people who haven't gotten started yet. And the very bottom of the funnel is people like you who've like already had an exit and now you're on to the next thing. There's just way more people at the top of the funnel. And for a lot of them, they just don't know what to work on. They have no idea what to work on they're probably listening to this episode saying, okay, like the hiring space seems ripe, but what should I do? Uh, How do I even figure out like, you know, how to break into this space? And I've talked to a few indie hackers who've done different things. I talked to John Doherty, he runs a company called Credo. He's kind of helping small businesses connect with uh, service providers, whether they're web designers or audio engineers, et cetera. Uh, I've talked to my friend, Lynn Tai. She runs a company called Key Values. Key Values helps engineers find jobs at companies based on their values. So you could go to her website and be like, I want a company that, you know, values family time and pets and healthy eating and it'll show you companies not based on like, you know, the salary range but based on like these sort of intangible values and she's found a cool niche there. I've talked to Ben Tossel at MakerPad who helps people learn how to, you know, get no code skills and then he's got a job board there for people hiring no coders and I've talked to like Lee Jen who runs Side Hustle Stack, which is basically kind of a, gi- a giant Notion document that's like, here's a bunch of different places for side hustles, here's how to find a job, here's how much they pay, here's our tips for getting a job there. There's a bunch of different like cool ideas that are all sort of kind of working. Uh, how do you think about, you know, maybe how do you think an indie hacker might go about figuring out how to break into the job space if they want to create sort of a modest, bootstrapped business?
1: Yeah, I think there are a lot of different approaches here. I generally like to, I find it's very valuable to go talk to the people with the money, you know, the way that I would start in hiring, let's say that you wanted to go down that path is I would talk to a lot of hiring managers. I would talk to a lot of recruiters. I think all of that is, is fairly obvious. It can be really hard to break in there. And so one hack that I think works particularly well is just like spending, instead of framing the first one to three months of your company as a customer development phase, why not just frame it as a newsletter? So when we were starting Lasky, we had this substack where we were publishing toward kind of a couple months ago, all of these stories about like interviewing people um, at, uh, at Tesla. And I think we interviewed some people at Stripe, right? And so we were like going to big companies where you're, you're hiring fast and there's like this huge growth curve in terms of hiring. We talked to uh, Emily Choi at at Coinbase is the CEO of Coinbase. And so we talked to all of these different executives at, at fast growing companies. And we framed it as an interview series, which I think can be a lot more powerful than like, hey, I'm a founder. I want to interview you about X. And the advantage is like, maybe I'll publish this. Maybe I won't. I'll put it on my Substack. I'll write up like a nice review. You can then share Mm -hmm. that with your network. And what that does is it exposes you and your early brand and your name to that person's entire network. Um, And so you get some of these early network effects where like when we started last year, we spoke to 110 hiring managers and recruiters. But we didn't know any of them. So instead of tapping our existing network, we went down this path of like hitting somebody up through a Twitter DM, Emily Choi at Coinbase. And she's like, oh, I can't do it. But uh, why don't you talk to my VP of people? You know, he'll jump on a call with you. In that call, we're asking for who are two other people leaders that you respect? And we're generally framing those conversations as what's the hardest part of your job? And you're going to get a wide range of answers. And I think it's it's correct to go throw 95% of those responses in the trash because They don't apply to you. They're not interesting things to solve. You can't solve them. Like they're technically impossible to solve right now with your skill set, whatever it may be. But I think in those 110 conversations, we had five or 10 conversations that deeply resonated. And it was like, oh, that is something that I could go solve. And I could get excited about that. And would you be an early user of that? And I think like that is a good way to kind of turn customer development into this like research phase, but also find hopefully some early users. I think that that dance can be really hard. You don't want to promise somebody, Hey, I want to do a profile on you. I want to do an interview and then I'm going to pivot and sell you something. It's like, you're trying to learn from them. You're trying to explore. But I think that if you do it correctly, you can have that initial conversation, be a lot of learning about what they're struggling with as a hiring manager or recruiter, and then get a lot of information. I, I think the second thing that I would do that nobody does that I would totally do, it's sort of like a pro move is go talk to corporate development, especially as an indie hacker, I think I talked about this in the AMA, Uh, the advice from like Paul Graham and a lot of people just categorically is like, if you're a founder, don't talk to corporate development until you're ready to sell your company. I actually think that that might be a mistake. I think for us, we spoke to corporate development teams a lot in the early days of interviewed and talking to the corp dev team at Workday and LinkedIn and indeed, and some of these big talent boards, Uh, Corporate development is generally very plugged in to not only where the product team is going from a product and engineering perspective, but also from a investment perspective or an acquisition perspective, where that company is going and what their biggest problems are. So an individual hiring manager, let's say at Indeed, may not be able to give you an an amazing idea on which company to start, but the head of Corp Dev or somebody on the Corp Dev team at Indeed might, you know, if if you can get them on the phone they would probably tell you a lot of like the top 10 things that indeed is just struggling to solve internally right now. And so whether you wanna just go build a business that throws off an extra thousand dollars a month, or you wanna build a business that gets acquired for a million or 10 million or hundred million in a few years, like using those ideas to say, there's this big company that has a lot of money, that has smart people, and they're unable to solve this problem. Like if you find an idea that resonates that's within your skill set, I think it's a wonderful way to sort of like come up with that idealist
0: kind of in a space. I love it. Giving us the pro moves right at the end of the episode. Thanks a ton for coming on the show. Uh, I'll have to have you back again at some point when Lasky's a little further along just to shoot the shit and talk about uh, what you're up to. In the meantime, where can listeners go to find out more about what you're up to now to find, I think you had like a cool B2B business sales playbook as well and wherever else you post on the internet.
1: Feel free to go to Lasky.com laski com. You can follow me on Twitter at chris baki. So it's C H R I S J B A K K E on Twitter. And then, yeah, if you want access, we do have like, uh, we sort of told our story about uh, going from zero to two and a half million in ARR ARR at our last company. Um, I think I linked it a couple of times in the Indie Hackers AMA. So feel free to just search me there. Um, Or if you just want to send me an email to lasky.com, I'm happy to send you a copy of it too.
0: Cool. And I will put all of this in the show notes. Chris, thanks again. All right, thanks so much.